up today from a different room. They're doing some uh, construction next door, which is a good excuse for day drinking. Hmm. But it's lousy for sound recording. I'm sure you'll still distantly hear some power saws and some hammering in the background. But that seemed appropriate, that and the fact that I'm looking like a hobo these days, to do You Can't Win by Jack Black. Not the, not the modern day uh, comic, but a turn of the century criminal highwayman uh, breaker and enterer uh, an all-around bad guy who wrote up his experiences in his career as a criminal uh, and put out a rather amazing book. In keeping with the parameters of our studies here, uh, the book was serialized in a magazine before published as a, uh, a book. And I only ever heard of it, like most people only ever heard of it, because it was a huge influence on a young fellow named William Seward Burroughs, who went on to borrow liberally from it in some of his uh, own writing. It doesn't particularly romanticize criminality, but it, it does do a certain amount of the honor among thieves business, and I think that uh, that's, an, that's appealing, to, appealing to read and appeal to Burroughs. Uh, let's, uh, let's dive in. It's, uh, it begins, I'm going to read the whole first chapter, which is not long, which starts from where he is today and does a little overview of what he what he went through to get here. It's also appropriately it's appropriate for Mother's Day, and you'll you'll see when I get there. Chapter one. I am now librarian of the San Francisco Call. Do I look like one? I turn my chair so I can look in the mirror. I don't see the face of a librarian. There is no smooth, high, white forehead. I do not see the calm, placid, composed countenance of the student. The forehead I see is high enough, but it is lined with furrows that look like knife scars. There are two vertical furrows between my eyes that make me appear to be wearing a continual scowl. My eyes are wide enough apart and not small, but they are hard, cold, calculating. They are blue, but of that shade of blue farthest removed from the violet. My nose is not long and sharp. Nevertheless, it is an inquisitive nose. My mouth is large, one corner of it is higher than the other, and I appear to be continually sneering. I do not scowl, I do not sneer, yet there is something in my face that causes a man or woman to hesitate before asking to be directed to Dr. Gordon's church. I can't remember a time that any woman, young or old, ever stopped me on the street and asked to be directed. Once in a great while, a drunk will roll over to where I am standing and ask how he can get to 29th and Mission. If I gaze into the mirror long enough, and think hard enough, I can conjure up another face. The old one seems to dissolve, and in its place I see the face of a schoolboy, a bright, shining, innocent face. I see a mop of white hair, a pair of blue eyes, and an inquisitive nose. I see myself standing on the broad steps of the sisters' convent school. At the age of fourteen, after three years, bored in tuition, I am leaving to go home to my father and then to another school for big boys. My teacher, a sweet, gentle sister, a Madonna, is holding my hand. She's crying. I must hurry away or I will be crying too. The mother superior says goodbye. Her thin lips are pressed so tightly together that I can barely see the line where they meet. She is looking into my eyes intently, and I am wondering what she is going to say to me when the crunching of gravel warns us that the old coach is ready and I must be off. The mother takes my teacher gently by the hand. I see them go through the wide door and disappear silently down the long, dark hall. 
All the boys in the school, and there were fifty of them, lined up and gave me a noisy send-off. The old coachman clicked his horses, and I was off for the train and the world. Any reader with a spoonful of imagination can picture me going home, then to other schools in turn, then to some sort of an office job, advancement here and there, always leading to a well-ordered, quiet, studious life, until he finally places me in the respectable and responsible position of librarian of a metropolitan newspaper. That's the way it should have been, but wasn't. The course I followed from that convent school to this library desk, if charted on a piece of paper, would look like the zigzag line that statisticians use to denote the rise and fall of temperature or rainfall or fluctuations of business. Every turn I made was a sharp one, a sudden one. In years, I cannot remember making one easy, graceful, rounded turn. It has often been a question with me just how much the best of it a boy has who has his mother with him until his feet are well planted under him who has a home and its influences until he gathers some kind of a working philosophy that helps him to face the world. There is no substitute for the home or the mother. It may not mean much to the average chap to have a friend say, John, I want you to meet my mother. To me, it means more than I can put on paper. It seems to explain to me why the man who so proudly says, this is my mother, is so many things that I am not and never can be. The insurance people have not yet got to the stage of insuring a man against the lifetime of failure. But if they ever do, I imagine the chap who can guarantee them that he will keep his mother with him until he is twenty will have a shade the best of it when he pays his premium. I am not lugging in the fact that I was left motherless at the age of ten to alibi myself away from anything. Nevertheless, I think a fellow has the right to ask himself if things might not have been different. My mother died before I got very well acquainted with her. I doubt if any child gives his parents much thought before the age of 12 or 13. I probably thought my mother was a person who put into the world to scrub my face and neck and to be screamed and kicked at, to put scratchy flannel rags around my neck and with smelly grease on them when I had the croup, and to stand by the bed and keep me in it when I had the measles. I can remember distinctly how angry I became when she brought me a nice new toothbrush and showed me what to do with it. This was the greatest indignity of all, the last straw. I threw the thing away and refused to use it. I told her up and down that I was no girl and wouldn't have any girl things. She did not get angry and scold. She just went on with her work, smiling. She may have been pleased with my manly outburst, I don't know. I don't remember that I was shocked or pained when she was buried. I cried because it was expected of me. Mother's relatives, a couple of sisters whom I never saw before or since, were crying. I saw tears in my father's eyes. So I tried to cry and did. I know my father realized what we had lost and his grief was genuine, but I could not feel it then. A few days later, father sold our little cottage home and furnishings, and we moved into the only hotel in the little town. Schools were few and far between for poor children then. I played around the hotel all day, running wild till father came home from work. He would have his dinner, read a paper, and then put me to bed. After that, he would read a book for an hour and go to bed himself. We lived this way for almost a year. Some nights he would put down his book and look at me strangely for minutes at a time. I was a problem, undoubtedly, and he was trying to decide what to do with me. A ten-year-old boy without a mother is a fit problem for any father's mind, and my father was a thoughtful man. Looking back at it, it seems to me that I was blown here and there like a dead leaf whipped about by the autumn winds till last it finds lodgment in some cozy fence corner. When I left school at fourteen, I was as unsophisticated as a boy could be. I knew no more of the world in its strange way than the gentle saintly woman who taught me my prayers in the convent. 
Before my 20th birthday, I was in the dock of a criminal court on trial for burglary. I was acquitted, but that's another story. In six years, I had deserted my father and home, gone on the road. I had become a snapper-up of small things, a tapper of tills, a street-door sneak thief, a prowler of cheap lodging houses, and at last a promising burglar in a small way. At 25, I was an expert house burglar, a nighttime prowler, carefully choosing only the best homes, homes of the wealthy, careless, insured people. I made them in the small hours of the night, always under arms. At 30, I was a respected member of the Yegg Brotherhood, a thief of which little is known. He is silent, secretive, wary, forever traveling, always a night worker. He shuns the bright light, seldom straying far from his kind, never coming to the surface. Circulating through space with his always-ready automatic, the Yegg rules the underworld of criminals. At 40, I found myself a solitary, capable journeyman highwayman, an escaped convict, a fugitive with a background of 25 years in the underworld. A bleak background. Crowded with robberies, burglaries, and thefts, too numerous to recall, all manner of crimes against property. Arrest, trials, acquittals, convictions, escaped, penitentiaries. I see in the background four of them. County jails, workhouses, city prisons, mounted police barracks, dungeons, solitary confinement, bread and water, hanging up, brutal floggings, and the murderous straitjacket. I see hop joints, wine dumps, thieves' resorts, and beggars' hangouts. Crime followed by swift retribution in one form or another. I had very few glasses of wine as I traveled this route. I rarely saw a woman smile and seldom heard a song. In those 25 years, I took all those things, and I am going to write about them. And I am going to write about them as I took them. With a smile. Jack Black, You Can't Win, 1926. Uh, I couldn't recommend it more highly. It's an incredibly entertaining read. It shows a world that I don't know you've ever seen depicted anywhere else except in snatches here and there. It's a very different look at the turn of the century, uh, the last century, or two centuries ago. As crazy as that sounds. Anyway, have a lovely rest of your day, evening, whatever, and till next time. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.